Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. We have not uh, stopped the coffee supply, but our suppliers have, um, in two weeks in a row, come up short. So as the, as the lesson of yesterday is, don't rely on weather forecasts and don't rely on breakfast. Maybe eat breakfast before you come to Grand Rounds, although we will <laughs> endeavor to get it here on time. So welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for the last Wednesday in January, the 28th of 2015, um, for my... Um, Happy news of the morning, actually mostly happy news, but uh, Dr. Hoffley and I were visiting Yale New Haven Children's Hospital uh, two weeks ago to learn about some things that they've done in, in collaboration and growth regionally. And um, we were meeting with the chief medical officer of Bridgeport Hospital, who happens to be a surgical intensivist. You were born there. Excellent, Pam. And he had, he, he unsolicited shared that he had visited uh, here, he had visited a family friend at the, in the PICU here at, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and, and totally unsolicited raved about our services and our facility and said, I wish we could be that good. So, um, so I, I, sometimes when you get unsolicited praise like that from a from a place that knows what it can be as a CMO of a hospital, it's it's uh, reassuring. So, so for today we have grand rounds. We have uh, next week a very special grand rounds. Our Leonard Rome visiting professor in uh, community advocacy and and pediatrics, uh, Ben Hoffman, is joining us, and we'll have a couple of days to interact with us in various venues. But grand rounds next Wednesday has the provocative title of Confessions of a Car Seat Junkie, Effective Community Advocacy in 10 Easy Steps. Um, we, we will have a little bit of a changed uh, uh, February. Those of you expecting to see Dr. Linda Grant, we um, allowed her to not have to fight uh, the traffic, at least out of Boston and southern New Hampshire, and um, she will be joining us later in February. So we're very, very thankful that Brendan Nyan uh, was able to join us on short notice. He was scheduled for February and, and switched his schedule to join us for today's talk, which will be wonderful. I've seen parts of it in the past. So Brendan uh, graduated from Swarthmore College with high honors in political science and continued his interest in political science at Duke University, gaining his master's and PhD. So it is actually Dr. Brendan Nyan. He, like our last uh, week's Grand Round speaker, completed a Robert, Robert Wood Johnson scholarship, not in um, uh, clinical health, but in health policy research at the University of Michigan, and has served as an assistant professor of government here at Dartmouth College since 2011. And he said not to read this, but it's so fun when I have a speaker who I can read this type of a bio. So his research, which focuses on political scandal and misperceptions about politics and healthcare, has been published or is forthcoming in journals, including the American Journal of Political Science, British Journal of Political Science, Political Analysis, Political, Analysis, political Psychology, Pediatrics, Medical care, vaccine, and social networks. He has also contributed to the New York Times policy and politics website, The Upshot. Previously, he has served as a media critic for Columbia Journalism Review, co-edited co Spin Sanity, a nonpartisan watchdog of political spin that was syndicated in Salon and the Philadelphia Inquirer, and co-authored all the president's spin, a New York Times bestseller. So it's fun to enjoy welcoming a New York Times bestseller to our podium, Dr. Nyan. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, it's a real honor to talk to all of you. Um, I'm a political scientist by training, but what I'm going to try to do today is hopefully talk about how the research I've done on misperceptions applies to what you all do in health, the kinds of questions you're interested in. 
And you'll see how the research that I've done has actually led me into a series of questions about health that I think are important um, for the field of pediatrics and, and I think more generally for public health. Okay, so um, the, full, the articles I'll be talking about here uh, are up here. If you're interested in more information, please email me if you'd like copies. Um, these are collaborations with social scientists and in some cases with clinicians, including uh, Gary Freed at the University of Michigan, who actually is a, a pediatrician. Okay, so the problem I'm interested in is why people believe things uh, that are either false or unsupported by the best available evidence <laughs> and why they're so hard to correct. Okay, so let's take two examples from the world of health. On the left here, we have uh, a protester uh, referencing the now infamous myth about the Affordable Care Act that it contains death panels, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. And on the right, <coughs> we have uh, a protester uh, claiming that vaccines are poisoning our children. Okay? And these are examples of the kinds of myths that frequently come up in debates over controversial issues in health and turn out to be very difficult to correct. So what I'm going to be talking to you about today is the research I've done on the sources of these myths, the reasons they're so hard to correct, and what we can do about them. Um, so I think the problem is we tend to approach these problems like this. We think the world works like this. Now, none of us would put it quite this baldly. It looks naive when you see it like that. But I think the implicit assumption in a lot of fields, including public health, but also journalism and education, is that when people believe things that aren't true, the best solution is simply to give them the information they need. This is sometimes referred to in science communication as the deficit model, right? Someone doesn't have the information that they need. They don't have an accurate belief. And what we have to do is give them that information. And that will solve the problem. The idea is that will, they will then update their beliefs and come to uh, the correct conclusion. They'll come to hold an accurate belief. Now, if only this were the world we actually lived in, right? Um, at least for controversial issues, Issues that touch on aspects of identity or that are otherwise emotionally charged, this is often not how the world works, as you've all experienced, right? The reaction you'll get when you try to correct people's misperceptions about issues that they care about or that matter to them often looks more like this, right? Um, and I'm sure you've all experienced this in your own practice in various ways. We've all experienced this in our lives. And of course, it's important to point out we all do this, okay? So there's a fundamental aspect of human psychology known as disconfirmation bias. And the idea is that when we're given information that contradicts some belief we hold or that is in tension with some predisposition we might have, some belief we might like to hold, we tend to be unduly skeptical of that information. Okay? And likewise, we tend to be very accepting of information that makes us feel like we're right, right? that confirms those beliefs we'd like to hold or that we already have. Okay? So the problem is, um, that when it comes to facts, this kind of disconfirmation bias can lead to some very uh, troubling results, okay? Because it turns out when we give people that corrective information that we think they need, they, when they react like this, often the result is we're not changing their minds, and in some cases we're actually making the problem worse. And I'll show you some various illustrations of that. <coughs> so um, the problem I'm interested in are inaccurate beliefs, and beliefs that are either false or unsupported by the best available evidence, okay? And I think I started looking into this problem in the area of politics, but it extends into the area of health, okay, where there are lots of issues like this as well, okay? And um, what I think is important to distinguish is the difference between being uninformed and being misinformed. 
Okay, and again, I think this is probably a distinction you've observed in your practice informally in various ways, but let me just explain why I think it matters. Okay, so in the world of politics where I come from, we spent a long time asking people survey questions that, that are, you can think of almost as trivia questions. Who is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court? Right? How many votes does it take to override a pizza? <laughs> and you won't be surprised to hear um, that most people don't know the answers to those questions. Okay? Some of you are probably thinking right now, I don't know the answer to those questions. <laughs> right? uh, that's okay. Um, it's not clear how much those matter. Okay? So people don't know very much about politics in the sense of maintaining an encyclopedic knowledge of politics, but in a lot of cases, I find that less troubling. I'm not sure necessarily why they need to know every factual detail to come to good decisions, okay? Um, in particular, because they realize they don't know the answers to those questions, okay? Most of the time, people recognize, I don't know who the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is, okay? The distinction here is that in other cases, people do think they know the correct answer. They are confident in that belief that they hold, okay? And those are gonna be the beliefs that are gonna be the most difficult to change. And often, they're gonna be related to issues we really care about, okay? And therefore may be influencing the opinions they hold, the votes they cast, or in some cases, the behaviors they express in the health domain, okay? Um, a great quote that I think illustrates this distinction um, comes from a contemporary of Mark Twain's. Um, you may have seen various versions of this quote floating around, and appropriately enough for a talk about misperceptions, they're often attributed to Mark Twain himself, um, even though he did not say this, as far as I know, or write this. Okay? But the quote, the quote is, it's better to know less than to know so much that ain't so. Okay? And so the idea here, this is, he's referring precisely to that distinction between being uninformed and being misinformed. And he's saying in some cases, it might be better to be uninformed than to be misinformed when you actually think you know the correct answer. Okay. So let me just give you a little bit of evidence on how prevalent these misperceptions can be. I'm going to start in the world of politics and then head to your world of health. Okay? So these are two of the most prominent misperceptions <laughs> about politics uh, in the last couple of decades, right, concerning the last two presidents. So we have the myth that President uh, Bush aided or allowed in the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and the myth that uh, President Obama wasn't born in this country, right? I'm sure you've heard of both of those. Um, and you, you remember I, I mentioned earlier how the misperceptions often relate to aspects of our identity that we care about a great deal. Right, that we have strong motivations to engage in that kind of disconfirmation bias I talked about. Okay? And so here we can see, despite massive evidence to the contrary, that those folks who might be motivated to believe in these claims uh, are most likely to hold them, not surprisingly. So you see these steep partisan gradients where uh, Democrats are much more likely to say that President Bush aided or allowed in the 9-11 terrorist attacks and independence and uh, so, and likewise, independents relative to Republicans, and then the reverse with the myth that President Obama wasn't born in this country. Okay? And I just want to underscore how prevalent these are. We're talking about more than 40% of Democrats here for the inside job myth, more than 40% of Republicans for the Obama wasn't born in this country myth. So we're talking about millions and millions of people. These are not, this is not some tiny fringe of the American public. These are widely held beliefs. Okay? So our motivations to believe in things seem to matter a lot, even in the face of massive, overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Okay. So you remember I mentioned earlier that part of the problem is people believe things confidently that may not be true. So let me show you some evidence uh, for that from some of my research looking at uh, prominent misconceptions about health. So we, we're, here we're looking at data 
on the two uh, most prominent health care reform plans of the last few decades, the Clinton uh, plan on the left, which some of you may remember, depending on your age, uh, and the uh, ACA on the right. And we're, what we're looking at here is whether people believed in the most prominent myth about each of those plans. Um, on the left, that was the myth that the Clinton plan would take away your choice of doctor, even if you paid out of pocket, which was uh, widely circulated at the time and false. And then on the right, the, the death panel myth that we talked to about a little bit earlier. Okay, And these are uh, predicted probabilities based on survey data. And what's on the x-axis here are respondents' self-rated knowledge of how much they know about the uh, reform plan in question. So this is not an objective measure. This is the surveyor asking, how much would you say you know about either the Clinton or the Obama plan? Okay? And what's striking about these results is that for those folks who are predisposed to believe in the myth, right, predisposed to believe in negative information about uh, a plan proposed by a president they didn't like, so in this case we're talking about Republicans, those Republicans who thought they knew more about the plan were more likely to believe in the myth. Right? In both cases, right? Let me just say that again. The folks who thought they knew more knew less. Okay? It should be a scary moment in the talk. Okay? And this is why it can be so hard to change people's minds. Okay? Because that subjective level of confidence can often be quite high when it's intersecting with people's predisposition to believe in a particular claim. Okay? So, as we've talked about, the problem is it's very hard for us to admit that we're wrong. Okay? It's very hard. And this is a fundamental human tendency. I want to be really clear that we all share this. This is not a talk where I say the stupid people out there believe, don't listen to things that they don't want to hear. But we all do that, right? No. We do this too. I do it and you do it. Okay? It's important to be clear about that. We all have this sort of tendency. It's very threatening to admit that we're wrong. It's very threatening to hear that a worldview you might hold might, you know, or elites you trust might be leading you in a direction that turns out not to be valid. Okay? And so we, we naturally resist that kind of information. Okay? I want to make one more point before I turn to some examples, um, which is oh, the second point, um, which is that uh, this process of resisting information you don't want to hear can be worse or stronger with people who are more educated or more knowledgeable. Okay? In other words, you and I. Okay? We all, by virtue of being more educated, more knowledgeable, we have more information to draw on when we want to resist a claim, okay? Um, and we're better able to counter-argue that claim. Think of reasons that might not be true, okay? So think of all the resistance that uh, people in healthcare have encountered when trying to change patterns of practice that aren't supported by the best available evidence, right? Who is incredibly hard to change? Doctors, right? <laughs> Because they can, they're very sophisticated. They can give all sorts of reasons why your evidence-based recommendation isn't true, and they should just keep doing whatever it is they've been doing, right? So you've all seen this kind of motivated reasoning yourself in the past, okay? Um, <coughs> and so it, it's important to counter this assumption that this is just about being less informed or educated. That's often not the case, and in some cases, the opposite is true. All right. Um, so let me give you one more example from the world of politics before... Uh, we turn to the domain of health just to show you how severe these sorts of responses can be. So this is from research I've done, again, in the world of politics, where we gave people a mock news article. And what we did was we experimentally manipulated whether or not 
this realistic news article included corrective information saying that the myth in question wasn't actually true. Okay, so in this case, there were, we did a number of studies, but in this case, we're talking about the myth um, that President Bush's tax cuts increased government revenue, which is something that President Bush and other top officials in his administration repeatedly suggested. That's a claim that's re rejected by his administration's own economists as, as well as basically the entire economics profession. Okay, so I think it's I think it's fair to say that that's inconsistent with the best available evidence. Okay, and so what we did is so some respondents read this mock news article where Bush suggested that the tax cuts had actually increased government revenue, and other respondents were randomly assigned to see that same information as well as its correction, saying in fact the evidence was inconsistent with that claim. Okay, and so what happens? Well, for liberals who aren't predisposed to believe things that President Bush tells them in general. Right? Um, you won't be surprised to hear they were fine with that, and the corrections slightly reduced how likely they were to endorse the myth after having read that article. But for conservatives who would be predisposed to want to believe things Bush is telling them and to disbelieve things that people are telling them about why Bush is wrong, belief in the myth doubles. <laughs> doubles. Okay? So we call this the backfire effect. Okay? And it's not to say this happens all the time. It's not to say you shouldn't give people corrective information. But we should be cautious about the assumption that just giving people the right information is um, going to do no harm and is often going to make their beliefs more accurate. Sometimes it may be ineffective or make their beliefs less accurate, right? Um, because these are the folks we think are most vulnerable to being misled. And this corrective information is actually increasing the prevalence of that misperception. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to share with you now are three, briefly, three studies in the domain of health. Okay. We're going to look at what happens when we try to correct the myth about death panels, and then two studies looking at correcting myths about vaccines, which are going to be closest probably to your practice. Okay? And then I'm really interested in your questions, of course, and your experiences as you've you know, tried to reason with patients about these things and so forth. Okay. So um, I'm going to start first with the death panel myth. Okay? So just to review, um, for those of you who don't read Sarah Palin's Facebook page, um, that's where it started. Uh, in August of 2009, she posted uh, this uh, statement on her Facebook page saying that uh, she didn't want her children or her parents to have to stand in front of Obama's death panel, which would decide whether they lived or died, so on and so forth. Okay? Um, and uh, we can talk about, you know, there have been various shifting rationales people have tried to offer after the fact to legitimize this. I think it's fair to say there is no death panel in the bill. Um, you know, there was this voluntary counseling provision we can talk about. The IPAB was added later, we can talk about, but none of that justifies, I think, this language, which really is talking about individual patients getting up or down decisions, life or death, right? <laughs> we're pretty sure that's not how it works, okay? So the media um, were actually notably aggressive in challenging this claim. There's often a lot of bad he said, she said coverage of claims like this. This was a claim they were more aggressive towards. So, for instance, the New York Times called it a false rumor um, very strongly in their coverage. But a number of other outlets did. So this was more prevalent, I would say, than many claims that I would consider to be unsupported. Um, this sort of, this sort of uh, media uh, coverage challenging the accuracy of the claim. So what effect did that have? Okay, so my co-authors and I, again, we created a random article, uh, an article where we randomly manipulated whether or not there was corrective information about the death panel myth. Okay. Um, now, let me give you two uh, provisos before we get into the results. The first is that we conducted this um, uh, a bit after that debate over the ACA, 
Okay, so this is by the time that Sarah Palin has become a polarizing figure within the Republican Party as well. Many of them didn't like her either. Okay, um, so it turns out that being a Republican doesn't predispose you to believe things Sarah Palin says circa 2010, 2011, because a lot of them didn't like her. So what we used instead was how people felt about Sarah Palin. Okay, so we had them rate her on a zero to 100 feeling thermometer, and we used that as a proxy for their predisposition to think she was right. Okay, the second thing we're going to look at is how much they know about politics. Okay? And remember, I told you that sometimes more sophisticated people are better able to counter-argue information they don't want to hear. So we're going to use an objective measure of how much they know about politics as a proxy for that. It's something that's standard in my field. Um, so this is an objective measure, not the subjective measures we looked at before. Okay, this is what the mock news article looks like. You don't have to read it all. The key difference here is this box in red, which is that randomly manipulated information uh, about whether or not there were actually, there are actually death panels, okay? Nonpartisan healthcare experts have concluded Palin's wrong. Okay, so what happens if you get that versus if you don't? Okay, so I'm gonna walk you through the results, okay? And we're gonna differentiate between people who had low political knowledge and people who had high political knowledge. And the reason is they responded very differently to uh, this information, okay? So I'm gonna start on the left with the folks, a representative person who has low political knowledge. Okay, so remember, we're distinguishing among people based on how they felt about Sarah Palin. So on the x-axis here, we have how they feel about Sarah Palin from zero, they hate her, to 100, they love her like their mother, okay? <laughs> okay, so as we move from uh, hating her to love her, uh, you'll be, you won't be surprised to see that the predicted probability they'll believe in the myth is, is rising, right? That's consistent with what we would expect. Now, the difference here, the experimental effect we're interested in is the difference between those two predicted probabilities, those folks in the control condition, which is represented by the solid line, and those folks in the correction condition, which is represented by the dashed line, okay? So the difference between those represents the change in predicted probability of endorsing the death panel myth, okay, um, when they get the correction instead of the control, okay? The shaded area represents the area where that's statistically significant. And so what you can see is, for those folks who feel either from neutral to warm towards Palin, who have low political knowledge, the correction is reducing the likelihood they'll endorse the death panel myth. So it's working, right? And it's working for precisely the folks you'd be most concerned about, the ones who are gonna be predisposed to believe in the myth. Okay, so that's the good news. That's the good news, okay. So now let's turn to the folks in the right panel, the high knowledge political folks. These are people who know a lot more about politics. They can answer some harder questions. And we think that means they're more sophisticated, okay? What you'll see, so first, what you see is there's a much steeper gradient here, which means there's a much tighter relationship between how you feel about Palin and whether you think the death panel's myth is real. And that's consistent with the idea that people with high political knowledge are better able to line up their beliefs in that way, okay? When you compare the correction to the control for those high political knowledge folks, you can see that for the ones who can't stand Sarah Palin, there's a slight misperception reducing effect that's statistically significant. And that's, again, represented by that shaded area. But those folks can't stand her, and they're very unlikely to believe it anyway, right? These are very low probabilities, okay? At the high end, though, those folks who feel quite warmly towards Palin, you can actually see the opposite effect. So the effect inverts, and you can see that the correction is actually increasing the probability that they will endorse the death panel myth for those high-knowledge folks who like Sarah Palin, the, precisely the folks who are best able to construct reasons why they should continue to believe Palin, okay? And our interpretation is, in the process of constructing reasons why they should believe 
in this myth in response to the correction. They actually come to believe in it more strongly than if we just asked them without the corrective information in the first place. Okay, so it's another example of how in the case of giving people corrective information, it doesn't always have this misperception reducing effect we might expect. All right, so let me turn to vaccines, all right? So you all aren't political scientists. Uh, this is closer to your practice, of course. So um, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time motivating this because I assume you're all uh, familiar, but let me just do a couple of minutes of setup on why this is important, right? So this is the infamous Wakefield article, the, the, uh, the Waterloo of scientific medical publishing that this appeared in The Lancet. Um, send your hate mail uh, to the UK about that. They've now retracted it. He's been stripped of his medical license. It was fraudulent in all sorts of ways, right? Um, but the, that continues to echo in the debate over vaccines, okay? And in the UK, as you might know, that article and the resulting controversy had a very significant effect on their MMR rates. Okay, so they had a real dip, right, um, in the years after that. And it's still, the effects of that are still occurring. So they had a big measles outbreak last year where that cohort that came of age and would have been vaccinated uh, after th the Wakefield article came out was most vulnerable and was hardest hit by this outbreak because they still uh, were more on or under immunized. Okay, um, now we haven't had that, okay? We haven't had that, but there's reason for concern, okay? Some states are seeing their selective exemption rates nudging upward, okay? There's clusters that have much lower uh, vaccination rates where we might start to really worry about herd immunity. And of course, if your child lives in one of those communities or goes to one of those schools, it doesn't matter to you if I tell you, well, the national rate is still above the herd immunity threshold, right? So I was corresponding with a professor uh, in Eugene, Oregon, who said a good school in his area has a 10% exemption rate. Okay. Now, as a parent, to me, that's terrifying, right? So the stakes on this can be quite high, even if those national numbers are still good. And so some of these states have really concerning levels of exemption, right? So Oregon, Colorado, some of these states have six, 7% exemption rates. Okay? So that's really starting to get problematic. And we're seeing, um, you know, there were uh, the outbreaks last year were the highest since measles declared eradicated in the United States. Um, and this Disneyland outbreak, which we can talk about, is still ongoing and has drawn a lot of attention to this issue in the last few weeks. Okay, so one idea people have is that misperceptions about vaccines are part of what's driving vaccine hesitancy, okay? And again, many providers have told me when I've presented this to different medical audiences that this is certainly an issue that they hear about and that comes up, okay? Um, so uh, my co-author, Garrett Fried, in a different study found more than 50% of American parents that they're serious, they have uh, serious, uh, they strongly agree or agree that they're concerned about serious adverse effects of vaccines. So more than half of parents are worried about adverse effects. A quarter of parents think some vaccines cause autism in healthy children, a quarter, okay? Now we know only a tiny fraction of those are actually exempting, right? So I think a fair way to think about this is this may be contributing to hesitancy among a group of parents who are still vaccinating, right? But are more, they're, they're not so sure, right? They're, they're, they're worried, they're concerned. Okay, and, and so this is, you know, if more of these folks actually started exempting, that'd be a very serious problem. Okay, so what we did is, is a, a national representative study of U.S. parents with children at home under age 18, and we tested the language from the CDC website that tries to explain to parents that vaccines don't cause autism. Okay, and so the reason we did this is we want to make sure that people 
didn't say, well, it's because of how you presented the information. Okay, so this is when we cut and pasted it from the CDC website and just adapted it to fit in the space we had. Okay, um, and we also tested a series of other messages used by the CDC and other public health agencies about the risks from measles, mumps, and rubella. I'm happy to talk about those in the q and I'm going to bracket those for time now since we're focusing on corrective information. We're going to look at two outcome measures. Um, first, did they believe in misperceptions about vaccines? And then second, and more importantly from a public health perspective, um, would they vaccinate a future child? Do they intend to vaccinate a future child? Okay, so that's a real bottom line we're interested in. Okay. This is what the text looks like of that correction. Okay, you will not get through this in the time when I'm standing here talking. Um, if it looks dense and scientific, that's because it is. I didn't do that. They did. Um, but this is an example of the kind of information deficit model. We we're going to throw some studies at you, right? I'm scared about autism. Look, studies. Right? That's, the, that's what's going on here. Um, and you can see that there's lots of fancy journal names and, and association names and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you can imagine if you were a parent who was concerned, you would see vaccines, autism, vaccines, autism, vaccines, autism, right? Are, are they trying too hard? Okay? So um, that's what we, but that was, that's what's on the CDC website. That's what we use. Okay? Um, so what happens when you give parents that information? Okay, so we're going to be comparing these uh, results when people saw that to a control group who didn't see anything about vaccines. Okay, again, there were these other vaccine messages that I'm not going to talk about now. But the groups we're interested in are the correction condition highlighted in the red boxes and the control condition here on the left. These are predictive probabilities, again, from statistical models of our experimental results. Okay? The predictive probability that people will strongly agree vaccines cause autism here on the left panel. And what you can see is, relative to the control condition, the correction is successfully reducing belief in that myth. Okay, so it's working. This is good news. Okay, so um, it's, there's a significant reduction in belief in the myth itself. Okay, there's a non-significant uh, change in their overall beliefs about the prevalence of side effects from the MMR vaccine, but it's not backfiring. Okay, so the, the specific myth in question is going down. Concerns about side effects are unchanged. Okay, so far so good. Okay, but now we're going to turn to whether they intend to vaccinate a future child. And again, remember, I've talked to you a lot about the importance of predispositions and how that can influence how people react to information. We saw no difference based on how parents felt about vaccines and how they responded um, to the correction with respect to these outcome variables, these factual belief measures. But when we turned to intent to vaccinate, that was not true. Okay, so what I'm going to do is show you um, three panels representing the uh, sample of American parents divided into terciles based on how they felt about vaccines in a previous wave of the survey when we administered a battery of questions about vaccines. Okay, so these are the parents who are, uh, have the least pro-vaccine attitudes. Um, these are parents in the middle tercile and the parents in the upper tercile. Okay, and what you can see is that uh, in the upper two terciles, they are overwhelmingly likely to say they would vaccinate a future child. And any of the messages we give them have no effect. Okay? But they're not really the concern from the public health perspective, right? It's those parents who have more mixed attitudes or negative attitudes towards vaccines who are most at risk of exempting. So the, the, the folks we were concerned about are down here on this bottom cell, and the story is very different there. So let me zoom in. Okay? Again, we're, we're, we're contrasting this control condition with this correction condition. And what you can see is 
the baseline probability that they would say they would vaccinate a future child with MMR is not that high, right? It's only about 70% in the control condition. When they are exposed to that corrective information, it drops more than 20 percentage points, okay? Now, this is just at the moment they read it. It's just a statement about intent of future behavior. More research should be done. I don't want to tell you this is the last word, but I do hope this underscores the importance of questioning that assumption that just giving more, people more information is better. So our interpretation, again, here is that people are thinking about, they, may not, they don't seem to be doubling down on the myth itself, right? They're not saying vaccines really do cause autism. But what they seem to be doing is saying, I don't feel positively towards vaccines. They're telling me that this myth is wrong. They're then thinking about reasons why you should still be concerned about vaccines, other hesitations or questions they have. In the process of doing that, they seem to be working themselves into a state where they actually feel less negative, sorry, more negatively towards vaccines than they otherwise would have. Okay? That's our interpretation of this result. Okay? And I'm, I'd be interested in your thoughts in the Q&A, but let me share one last study with you. Um, before we get to that, which is, Ben, so we did a follow-up study looking at the flu vaccine, okay? So, um, as you all know, flu vaccine rates are much lower than childhood rates because of the lack of uh, an equivalent regulatory regime. So, many more people are not getting the flu vaccine, of course, okay? And uh, why? Well, again, people often point to myths. So, the most prevalent, which I'm sure you've, again, heard in your practice, the flu vaccine can give you the flu, right? Have people heard that? Yeah, as he nods, okay? Um, so people try to change that. So this is an example tweet from the FDA, myth, right? You know, uh, you can get the flu from the flu vaccine. Learn more, right? We're gonna challenge this myth, right? So this is the kind of myth-busting approach, right? You've heard this, here's the real information, okay? Um, so again, we wanted to see, is that actually true? If we correct people's misperceptions about getting the flu from the flu vaccine, will that change their mind, okay? And so again, we're going to be looking at that corrective information. We're going to be drawing it directly from the CDC, and we're going to look at whether they believe in the myth as well as whether they intend to vaccinate. Okay. Um, the first point, uh, the first finding is lots of people think uh, the flu vaccine can give you the flu. This is a very widely held uh, misperception. Um, approximately half Americans think it's somewhat or very accurate. Um, now, and only a little over 40% of Americans think the flu vaccine is very safe. When asked to evaluate them, uh, the, the vaccine on a scale from very safe to not at all safe. And so that's kind of the baseline level of belief. All right. This is that corrective information we showed them. If it looks a lot like the one I showed you before, you're right. If it looks like they're vomiting studies onto the page, you're right. <laughs> um, and what's the result? Okay. So last time, remember, I divided people based on their predispositions. We had less survey space on this study. So we asked them a single question before they took this, which was, how concerned uh, are you about side effects from vaccines? Okay? And we differentiated between people with the highest concerns and everyone else. So it's approximately the top quarter of the sample in terms of level of concern about vaccine side effects. And I should say, by the way, this is U.S. adults, not parents like in the last study. So in each of these panels, the left three predicted probabilities are those folks who have low levels of concern about side effects. Okay? And that's approximately the bottom three quarters in terms of level of concern. And then this group that's the most concerned, which again is the one of most, that's at most risk of, of not getting vaccinated, okay? So uh, here again, we're looking at beliefs uh, first before we turn to behavior. And you can see that um, there's a statistically significant reduction 
in beliefs that the vaccine can give you the flu for both those folks who have low levels of concern about side effects and high. Okay, so again, it's working. Okay, similar result here. General beliefs that the flu vaccine are unsafe, is unsafe, are unchanged. Okay, so the specific myth, belief in it's going down, belief in the overall safety of the vaccine is unchanged. Okay, but when we turn to how likely they are to get the flu vaccine in the upcoming flu season, we find a very striking result that is uh, almost disturbingly parallel to the previous study I showed you. Okay, for those folks who have high levels of concern about vaccine side effects, the ones who are most at risk, their uh, probability of saying that they're very likely to get the flu vaccine goes way down, way down. Okay. So again, we think what's happening is people are thinking about other concerns or questions they have in response to this kind of corrective information. Okay. So let me just um, wrap up with what you can do. Okay. So <laughs> the first thing is don't feed the perception of crisis about vaccination. Okay. Social norms matter a lot. Some people are, are flying off the handle about what is still a very small percentage of parents, at least for childhood vaccines who are exempting. Um, and the second is to have confidence in your own authority as a provider to be an effective advocate for vaccines. So parents overwhelmingly name their children's doctor as their most trusted source of information about vaccines. Okay, so one reaction to this information is not that it's impossible to correct these beliefs, but that public health agencies putting things in press releases or tweets or on the internet is likely to be much less effective than your relationship with a parent who trusts you. Okay, so um, I really think providers are the most important advocates for vaccines and can do more. And we can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, Doug Opel is a pediatrician at the University of Washington who should have out to talk about this if you'd like to learn more. He's a very interesting guy. He's doing a lot of work on how providers talk uh, to patients about vaccines. Okay? And he's done research on the difference between a presumptive and a participatory approach. Okay? Where a presumptive approach is where you say, now it's time to do some shots. Okay? Not to violate the principle of informed consent, but to say, my default assumption as a provider is that you need to have some shots, right? When they wheel that person in with a gunshot wound, no one says, well, how do you feel about gunshot, about bullet removal, right? <laughs> they say, we need to get this thing out of there, okay? Right? So there are ways to talk about this that reflect the level of confidence we have as scientists about the, the effectiveness of vaccines. The other thing is to target where you direct your efforts. So there's lots of parents you don't act, who are at very low risk of exempting, right? My pediatrician, when, when, my first, when my son was born, they said, we can work with you on vaccines. We went, no, we said, no, 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 we want everything, <laughs> right? They were already bargaining with us, right? They were going into this participatory thing, okay? I was not the person they should be focusing on, okay? And so uh, Doug has been developing a screening question, a very simple screening questionnaire that he's validated that you could use with parents to find out which parents you might need to allocate time to having this sort of conversation with. Because I know time is a very important constraint in your world when you're trying to cover so much in these well-child visits. Okay, so um, let me stop because I do want to hear your questions and just say um, what I hope I've convinced you of is that the misperceptions reflect deep underlying psychological tendencies to not uh, want to change our mind or to defend beliefs we'd like to hold. And that we should try to test the messages we use experimentally rather than just assuming they work. Um, but and then, you know, more importantly, that as providers, you should still uh, advocate on behalf of vaccines because you may be more effective than the kinds of uh, messages I've tested. So thanks.
I wonder about using some of the same techniques that um, people like the brilliant Jenny McCarthy, right? She's out there with her, her scare tactics. So um, it feels manipulative to me to put like big flash pictures of children dying of diphtheria and measles. But I wonder, do you fight fire with fire? Is that more, is that, you know, would that be more effective? And can we ethically do <laughs> I tried that. Um, so remember, I, met, I referred to those different uh, messages that I didn't have time to talk about. So in our MMR study, we tested three different ways to present the dangers of the diseases that the vaccine prevents. And one of them was precisely showing them images of children with these diseases because many people, you know, parents, right, people of my generation, uh, haven't often seen, I've never seen a case of any of these. Um, older generations, they may be more familiar, but measles is a very abstract idea. And so... Um, my collaborator, Dr. Free, is a pediatrician who's used these in his practice and was interested in testing their effect. We found it didn't change vaccine, vaccination intention in a positive way. And some of these scare tactics, we found some suggestive evidence they might actually be making people more worried about sick children in a way that was actually contributing to belief, uh, misperception belief. We're not sure about that result, but it, it was not a positive effect. Um, and let me just say briefly, the other two things we tested were um, the textual information about the dangers of the diseases from the VIS, which you've all probably seen, and then an anecdote, a narrative from the CDC website about a single uh, child who became ill that was intended to kind of make it more relatable and dramatic. Um, again, maybe from a provider, that would be different, but um, we were disappointed in those results for sure. So one thing in the Hopeful study, that's one of my favorite papers in the last couple of years, the counseling one, mm -hmm. They found that if you went in and basically said it's time for some shots now, that was much more effective. Yes, they did. Now, they found it was associated with it. Yeah. Okay, so I, I was at a conference. Yes, yes. So I, I was at a conference with Doug about this. It's very promising. I think it's very interesting. It's consistent with a lot of what we know in social science about the power of defaults. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is if the providers are unconsciously adjusting which language they use depending on the patient or their characteristics. Right? So that association could reflect unconscious use of one type of approach versus the other, and that so it might not be a causal effect. So what we'd like is an experiment. Now, here's the problem. Providers are incredibly hard to get you to use the language we'd like you to use in a study. Right? Um, so uh, if, you're, if you're interested in collaborating with Dr. Opal on implementing a, a, a rigorous test of this, I'm sure he would love to talk more, uh, but it's very challenging. And what we've done is we've shifted over the last 15 years much more to participate Yes, no, and I think it's a great point because there are lots of domains, as people know at Dartmouth more than almost any other place, where the questions, the, the decisions are much more murky, right? And there's all these areas of health where the assumptions people have about the right course of treatment aren't so clear cut, and we want participatory approaches over PSA screening and mammograms and prostate cancer treatment. There's all this long list of things where there may be over treatment and you need participatory approaches. And I think the problem is when that leaks into areas where the medical evidence is much stronger like this, right? And so I hope you guys, when you're training folks especially, help keep those distinctions clear between domains. Because if it does start leaking into other areas like this, it could have a really harmful effect. People take those cues from you, right? That, that participatory, it sounds like a question. It's a cue from you that I'm, I, as an authority in the room about medicine, don't think there's a right answer, right? And, you know, patients, patients take those cues. That's great. 
Edwards. Yeah, I wonder what other things may be going on. There's, there seems to be this sort of uh, inherent mistrust of official sort of uh, information provision from the government agencies or whatever. I mean, people love conspiracy theories. When I was in Dallas as a fellow, you know, the JFK uh, assassination was like still on the news every, and it probably still is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like 70% of Americans believe it. So the more you tell them that they feel like that there's a conspiracy to actually give you misinformation, if it's coming from official uh, uh, sources, that, that the truth is really out there, but they're not being given the truth because they don't trust authority. Yes. No, I, I think there's some. There's really something to that sort of that level of trust, uh, that trust problem. I should say in the in the vaccine study, we did ask a battery of questions of trust in health institutions such as the CDC and the FDA. We found it didn't change how people responded to our treatments in the same way as their vaccine predispositions. But I do think there's something to that. And what I tend to say to people when they're thinking about how to talk about vaccination is again, you as the trusted provider might be outside of the putative conspiracy, right? Or a more trusted source. But there are lots of other ways you can bring in trusted sources, right? So religious leaders, community leaders, business leaders, right? People that people share group memberships and identity with are gonna be much more trusted and much more like, much less likely to be uh, distrusted in the way you're talking about. So um, these over the, you know, top down messaging of here's the science, I think is much less likely to be effective than working from the bottom up, okay? And if I can just add one brief thing, which is, it's a very different context, but I think the same lesson as came out of the, uh, the, the response to Ebola in West Africa, where they were trying to explain uh, proper handling of corpses and things in a kind of, here's the science, everyone do it way. And that wasn't working until they started working with local community leaders to build trust. And those leaders went to their communities and said, we need to do this to protect ourselves. And that's when things started changing. Thank you. So I trained for three years before medical school as a home birth midwife, and so I had the opportunity to meet a lot of families and some um, alternative providers who had uh, strong feelings opposed to vaccination. And one thing that I learned from that was the emotional and psychological thing that you're talking about and the relationship are so important. So people would often be people, these people would often have had very traumatic uh, experiences of dismissal or alienation or being laughed at by people in mainstream healthcare, like previous birth experiences where um, physicians had really dismissed them or been downright inappropriate, and it had caused a wound that had made those moms usually feel alienated, and like their intelligence or instincts as a mom were not respected, and that made them vulnerable to the manipulative information. So that's why. I, and I feel like I saw that over and over again. So that's why I appreciate what you're saying about the trust and the relationship, because there may be other ways we can affirm people's choices and their approaches to parenting that may be not mainstream, that help them see that we're validating them. And that can be a key to them then trusting us more about this area where they have been manipulated by false information. Yes, no, that is, that is incredibly well put. And I just want to build on that in a couple of ways. First is to say that there's actually research I've done in the area of politics, not yet in health, where you affirm people in some other domain, and that's actually been shown to help them be more open to what otherwise might be threatening information. They feel better about themselves in some other area, and that helps them feel less threatened about this information you might tell them, right? So, um, and 
the other thing that's uh, important there is this this idea of um, people being dismissed. Um, I think is a, is an important one because uh, you know there have been providers who have been quoted since this Disneyland outbreak talking about patients or it's people who exempt from vaccines in a way that I find incredibly um, ungenerous and often you know it very. I can imagine it provoking exactly the sort of reaction you're describing. So two doctors in particular, one was quoted calling them uh, selfish and another quoted them as dumb. And there are a lot of people now in the, in the wake of Disneyland who've been talking about the anti-vaccine folks in that way as if these are people who are trying to be antisocial, who are trying to put their children at risk. And I think that's exactly the wrong approach. My, my understanding is that the vast majority of these folks really are trying to do what's what they think is best for their children, and they've been led astray or given bad information or had a bad experience. And if we come to them with that mindset, as opposed to thinking of them as dumb and, and attacking them, I, th you know, I think we can have a much more positive effect. Um, just as far as methods to make this better, like going along with the presumptive approach, we now give flu vaccines at school. Has there been any study of like if children are all given things at the same time or if there's like a big group that, that like does that improve parental perception of you know because there's sort of like like why do we have to consider each child especially for the mmr vaccine why can't it just be that like okay you're you know you're in kindergarten now if you haven't had it mine is at the nurse's office and today is your day <laughs> my understanding is that there was a point when it was considered to have school clinics be the primary point of vaccination for a larger set of childhood vaccines. And I, I don't know the full history. Um, I do think there are ways to signal the norm in a community around vaccination. And that's part of what's powerful about those sorts of ideas, right? Is they communicate that we as a community think it's important to protect each other by doing this. And we're going we're gonna to communicate that through the practices of the institutions that we run and that our children attend and that we are part of. Um, and, you know, the same thing with, with medical centers, you know, requiring flu vaccination, right? That's DHMC and other medical centers, you know, or communicating or, you know, smoking bans. There, there are ways you can communicate these norms that don't involve the sort of attacks we're talking about before. I don't know of research specifically uh, like that, but um, I do know there's a group in Washington that's actually been working with specific par training parents to be community advocates within their local community. So there may be, there may be other sorts of ways to pursue that kind of idea. Thanks for this talk. It's fantastic. Thanks. I want to follow up on Bill. I think there's also a psychological validation of the concern when you present evidence. Nobody does multiple, you know, center trials of the tooth parent, right? So when you see three studies and 500,000 children studied, then you say, oh, there must be a concern for people to spend that much effort. I have to say, it never occurred to me that thimerosal would be harmful until I started reading all these articles about how it's not harmful. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, so I think that's part of the essence mm -hmm. here. It's not just the resistance. It says, oh my God, I, I was not aware there was a controversy. Yes, no, I, I think that's very important. I mean, so in my world of politics, it's a big question with politicians. Do they deny the baseless accusation and thereby make people wonder why they're trying so hard to say it's not true. Um, and so, I mean, what that does reinforce though also is the importance of experts like you communicating what's known so that these things don't get off the ground in the first place. Communicating not with the public, but with journalists, 
with experts, with politicians, right? There are lots of ways that um, incredible amounts of resources can be diverted into testing bogus theories that once they get off the ground, people feel compelled to disprove. And we spend years trying to put the genie back in the bottle and correct these things. And, but once they're started, it's very hard, right? So the Lancet is the kind of jumping off point there where their failure created this cascade. Um, and, and, and there are ways, hopefully, to prevent that from happening as frequently. Thank you very much, Dr. Nanka. That was a great talk. I'm just going to follow up with what has been said before. Changing the societal norm and the public health messaging, I'm very comfortable in the room with a vaccine-hesitant family. And I feel like I can establish a good rapport. I can use some great language. I can build the trust. I can do that. But when I'm fighting years and years and tweets and Facebook pages and everything else in there, how can we, as public health people, message that better? Smoking being the prime example. My grandmother grew up in a generation where everybody smoked, and they had to change her mind to quit. She never did. My children, on the other hand, are growing up in a society where it's the norm not to smoke. And they go through the dark campus, and there's, if there's a kid smoking on the dark campus. They're like, oh, mom, that's so gross. Look at that. Um, which is great as a parent to be able to hear that. But we have to be able to change the societal norm from the public health standpoint so that I don't have to exhaust my time right. in a room one-on-one. Right, right. No, I agree. I mean, it's a very inefficient way to counter the problem. Um, and I think, again, we can communicate that norm in a more positive way. I, one of the problems, I think, is that sometimes people who feel positively towards vaccines actually avoid talking about it because it's like bringing up religion at a dinner party, right? <laughs> and there may be ways to kind of strike this balance more appropriately. Um, but also, I should just say, one thing we haven't talked about that's important is communicating that norm appropriately in ways that respect consent uh, in the exemption policies we use. So there have been very lean exemption policies that I would say don't appropriately strike the balance between the public health concerns and the autonomy concerns of people who do want to exempt. So in some places, it's actually easier to exempt than it is to prove that your child got the vaccine. So they don't even trust their own vaccination statistics because some parents may just be signing it because they don't want to deal with it, right? So oh, some states are starting to re-examine how they handle that policy, and I think that's a way we could communicate. Now, that won't necessarily get it to our children, but these kinds of drives every year, for instance, to get flu vaccines, uh, vaccination levels up and things like that may be ways that we can all participate in uh, building a norm in, within our communities that are effective. Well, that's a very provocative talk. Not, and, um, we have one or two minutes so people can grab coffee on their way back. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks.